There are three little words that ruin the efforts of our guest care ministry. They make the outreach ministry of any church nervous. Whenever a guest comes to our church or any church, these are the three words that can make the heads of the guest care team drop in shame. Three little words which ruin any hope of presenting the church in the hope-for light of being exciting and cutting-edge and postmodern and millennial. Three little words in one short sentence, which after having promised dynamic preaching and immediately relevant application, makes everything fall flat. These three words make the guest care team ask themselves, why do we even bother? Because these three little words have the potential to make any first-time guest raise his eyebrows and say, what have I gotten myself into? These three little words, which can potentially discourage the entire guest care team and make the first-time guest question his judgment in showing up, well, here they are. Brace yourselves. Turn to Leviticus. <laughs> and you hear that and you say, you, you couldn't just go to a nice miracle of Jesus, maybe a solid exhortation passage in an epistle. How about the familiar Bible story? Let's do Noah's Ark or David and Goliath. And you say, no, you had to go to a book which spends a whole chapter on skin boils with white hairs in them. Chapter 13, another whole chapter basically saying it's illegal to see your in-laws naked, like I needed to hear that. And you might say, yes, we could have talked about the glories of heaven and the coming kingdom of Christ, but instead, we're going to the only book in the whole Bible which uses the medical term for a man's reproductive parts twice. And in fact, it's the only verse in all the Bible which contains the medical term for a man's reproductive body parts and other encouraging words all in the same verse like hunchback, dwarf, itching disease, and scabs all together. And then it says obvious things like if a man loses all his hair, he is bald. So even at this moment, my phone is lighting up as the members of our guest care team are texting me their resignations for pulling the rug out from all their hard work to make guests feel comfortable. But this is where we are, and as it happens, we are nearing the halfway point of our very quick study through the Pentateuch as we're taking really a flyover in 60 messages to go over the first five books of the Bible. They're very much one unit, and this is what we're coming to here. Genesis has covered creation, sin, the fall of mankind, the plan of God for mankind, and the promise of a coming Savior. Exodus picks that story right up, covering the formation of God's chosen nation of Israel through whom this Savior will come. And now we come to Leviticus, which gives us great detail on how the people of God are to live before God, how they are to live before a holy God. And to see how important Leviticus really is for us, I want to consider a, a vital New Testament passage. You don't have to turn there. We'll be in Leviticus 1 in a minute. But the Apostle Peter was writing to the Church of Jesus Christ, undergoing persecution, scattered all over the world. And his basic message in 1 Peter was that believers suffer faithfully and live obedient lives even in the face of trials. And that suffering is to be expected, but we are to remain steadfast as demonstrated by the submitted, dutiful lives aimed at pleasing the Lord. In fact, we could summarize Peter's intention for his letter of 1 Peter in the first chapter in verses 14 through 16. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. 
So Peter is quoting from the Old Testament, by the way, proving that the conception of living holy lives before God as a result of his grace is not an Old Testament concept, it's not a New Testament concept. It is a, a, a broad universal principle of those who have lived a true, who have received a true life-changing faith in the living God, we live holy lives. And if you read this, you notice that all Peter says is, it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. He doesn't say where it's written. Why doesn't he give reference to this quote? Well, he's writing primarily to Jewish Christians, and every one of them would know exactly what he's referencing. He could be quoting from about a half dozen different places in the book of Leviticus, twice in chapter 11, once in chapter 19, twice in chapter 20, once in chapter 21, be holy for I am holy. And that just says Leviticus in all caps. And so we could easily identify that the main thrust, the basic theme of Leviticus to God's chosen nation of Israel, now receiving the detailed law of God, the main thrust of this book is be holy as I am holy. That's what Leviticus is about. And so that leads us to the obvious question, what does it mean that God is holy? That is a study so vast and awesome, I can't possibly even begin to touch that in one night. We could do that for years and not really scratch the surface. I would submit, though, that understanding the holiness of God is one of your chief goals as a Christian. That that ought to be a a major part of your life because the holiness of God can be tracked in every single verse of Scripture. All of the Bible contains some reference to or pointing to God's holiness. But one thing we can do, perhaps it might be helpful, is identify what the holiness of God is not. It might mark off a couple of things off of our list here. The the holiness of God is not an attribute of God. We want to think theologically in, in proper terms. It's a mistake to simply lump holiness in with the fact that God is gracious, God is merciful, God is loving, God is just, and so forth. Because holiness doesn't merely describe God's character. Holiness places God as completely in his own category. It's over and above all the attributes of God that we understand from theology. Holiness contains the idea that God is entirely unique in every possible way and literally can't be compared to anything. There is nothing to which we can compare God. Everything else is created by him. And so anything that we compare God to is already something that he made. And so if there's any sort of Uh, similarity at all the only reason there's a similarity is because he decided to make something similar to himself and obviously the the most obvious example is mankind made in the image of God but that doesn't place us in the same category of God that doesn't mean we get to compare him to us as if we are somehow a standard so the holiness of God is not an attribute we could also say this the holiness of God is not merely moral purity The holiness of God is not merely moral purity. The holiness of God includes his moral purity, certainly. But to reduce his holiness to simply how God acts, how he behaves, it would almost make us lead to the point of having God earn his holiness. God isn't holy because he acts a certain way. He acts a certain way because he's holy. And so we have to understand that all his actions proceed from his character, His moral purity is the logical outworking. It's the only outworking of the fact that he's holy. Another thing we could say the holiness of God is not. The holiness of God is not something God gave up in Christ. 
The holiness of God is not something God gave up in Christ. In the broad evangelical church, there's been for many years a move away from the idea of the pure holiness of God in Christ in order to redefine God in the New Testament. That the holiness of God is somehow an Old Testament concept, but in Christ we've moved beyond that, that now God isn't in the bad mood that he seemed to be all through the Old Testament with all that judgment and devastation all over the place, with God ordering the complete destruction of whole peoples. But remember this, the most violent, aggressive, white-hot act of holy judgment in all of the Bible happened in the New Testament. When God punishes an unbeliever for his sins, the unbeliever is being punished for his sin and his sin only, and that's horrific to be certain. But when God punished Jesus Christ in our place, when he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, God poured his wrath on Christ times every person who would ever believe in him. That We can't even fathom that. The greatest act of God's holy, righteous judgment did not happen in the Old Testament. The Old Testament was merely a warm-up for an unfathomable judgment which was poured on his own son. And one more, the holiness of God is not something to be trifled with. It is not something to be trifled with. How quick some are when the holiness of God is proclaimed to cry out legalism or to say, my God is a God of love, as if somehow the loving nature of God negates his holiness. Can I shock you with something? The love of God is not limitless. The love of God is not limitless while his holiness is is limitless how can you say the love of god has limits well it's very simple he has chosen to love some and not others and we thank him for his love for us but there is no rule book that god must follow that says he must love everyone that he's somehow obligated to us in fact many are quick to condemn god for the killing of women and children in the old testament can i ask you a question Why do we assume that a sinful human being of any age has an inherent right to live? Has an inherent right to life except given by God? God is the giver of life and therefore he is the one with the right to take it back. Deuteronomy 32.39 See now that I, even I, am he and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. So how do we focus ourselves here? We're we're still staying broad and then we'll get a little bit more focused. But I think the best focus concerning the, the holiness of God for our purposes in Leviticus is to try to grasp that holiness means that God is unique. He's different. He's set apart. He's other from everything else. This includes, of course, his basic character, what some theologians call God's majesty holiness, that he's inherently majestic, he's inherently royal, he's in no way impacted, manipulated, or changed by any part of his creation. And this is reflected in the main Hebrew word translated holy or holiness, which speaks of God as, as weighty, as there's a heaviness, meaning importance to God. This is also reflected in the main Greek word translated holy, which speaks of the set-apartness of God, the separateness, that he's different, he is other. And so his holiness includes his majesty holiness. But it it also includes, but is not limited to, his purity of action, what some theologians call his purity holiness. But even in talking about God's purity, again, we can easily fall into a trap. 
Because for us to declare that God is pure in all he does, we are by definition making a judgment call and comparing him to a standard. But because of God's majesty holiness, God is the only standard to whom God can be compared. So there is no standard with which to compare him. Whatever he does is pure. How can you define the morality of God? Everything he does is pure. If he did it, it makes it right. He is always just. He is always righteous. He is always pure. And this is where people get into theological trouble because they become uncomfortable with God's actions. And now we set up a a different standard with which to compare God. And since people do not possess holiness, any standard we set up will be sinful, arrogant, ignorant, foolish, lacking in understanding. And so it, it doesn't work. There is no standard with which to compare God. When somebody says, what does it mean that God is holy? It's just all that God is. That is what holiness is. And so because of God's majesty holiness on one hand and his purity holiness on the other hand, our focus, as both Old Testament and New Testament indicate to us, is to see the holiness of God as our motivation to be unique, to be different, to be set apart. And how do we do that? Well, it's just as Peter said, be obedient children. So in the law of Moses as found in Leviticus, we we aren't under this particular law code at all. We are under the new covenant. But what we're going to find is that all the aspects of holiness covered in Leviticus are universal and they're timeless, regardless of what covenant we're speaking of. So please don't think, and I know you never would, but please don't think, oh, Steve's trying to put us under the Old Testament law again. The New Testament says this of the Old Testament. 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so we look to the principles And just to be very real with you, in my ministry experience, the Christian who has an animosity toward the Old Testament law very often doesn't want to obey the New Testament law either. That kind of goes hand in hand, and that's the person that defines grace as some sort of warm feeling that God has towards us regardless of what we do. Doesn't really have anything to do with our behavior and so forth. So my goal for tonight is just to kind of give you a broad overview, just a a quick flyover to set your thinking properly for Leviticus. And while I made a joke at the beginning, I want you to see Leviticus as a a glorious resource to remind us exactly how, how great and how mighty the idea of holiness is. Because that's what the whole book is about. It's saturated with holiness. And it's the first several verses that really set the tone for the whole book, for the whole theme of holiness, Look with me at Leviticus chapter 1, and we'll just make one point here and then begin kind of flying over some other parts of of Leviticus. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, he shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. Key word in those three verses. It's one Hebrew, one word in Hebrew, without blemish. This is a Hebrew word which means complete, sound, intact, whole, perfect, unobjectionable. 
And you're going to see this theme all throughout Leviticus. In fact, that same Hebrew word is used 22 more times, almost one time every chapter, without blemish, without blemish, without blemish. But what led us to this point here of God insisting on holiness because he is holy? What got us here of God emphasizing that which is pure, that which is without blemish? Well, the end of Exodus details the construction and the setting up of the tabernacle. This is the place where through sacrifice, God will be among his people. And remember, Leviticus simply picks up where Exodus left off. So the best way to understand the context of Leviticus is look back with me on the other page. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, wherever the cloud was taken up over the tab- whenever the cloud was taken up over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. That's the tabernacle. And so you immediately go into this idea, okay, now we have set up our worship system and now it's time to be holy. And so that's, that's how we got here. What's the last thing to happen in Exodus? A proclamation that God is among his people. He is with them. First thing to happen in Leviticus, God is among his people, so they must be holy. This is not a free ride. You don't get to just enjoy God being here without there being a a response on your part. And so the presence of holy God with his people is really the clue to what Leviticus is all about. God is holy and he will not dwell with, he will not live with, he will not abide with the profane and the unholy. So what I want to do this evening is briefly explore Leviticus and just ask five questions. The first three are within Leviticus and the the second two kind of go beyond Leviticus. Here are five questions. How should people live if God lives with them? And I'll repeat these for you. What are the foundations of Leviticus? Why is worship so central to holiness before God? What is God's plan for holiness on the earth? And just how intense is God's holiness? So we'll walk through those together. You'll, you'll get them. First question. How should people live if God lives with them? How should people live if God lives with them? Leviticus gives basically four answers to this question. And it's the, the answers are found by a simple outline of Leviticus. I won't have you turn to these passages. We're just going to glide over the top of them. But answer number one is found in the first seven chapters. Chapters one through seven. And here's the answer to how should people live if God lives with them. Answer number one, sacrifice is necessary to maintain covenant faithfulness. Sacrifice is necessary to maintain covenant faithfulness. And these first seven chapters then outline the guidelines and rules for animal sacrifice. This is how the Israelite was to address relational disloyalty, relational failures, whether it's sins against God or sins against fellow countrymen. These sacrifices never could and were never meant to begin a relationship with God. A relationship with God can only be obtained by faith, Old Testament, New Testament. But what they served was the purpose of providing a continued temporary temporary atonement for sin and maintaining your life of submission, maintaining your life of covenant loyalty. There's a second answer found in chapters 8 through 10. 
mediation between God and man is necessary for fellowship. Mediation between God and man is necessary for fellowship. And so God set up a mediatorial priesthood. These intercessors, these are those who would represent God to the people and the people to God. The priests didn't have the ability or the authority to grant forgiveness. They didn't grant grace. They simply facilitated the worship of the individual faithful Israelite and of the nation as a whole. They represented God to the people by teaching the people God's law. And they represented the people to God by offering sacrifice for sin on their behalf unto God. And so this mediation, this sent a a clear message that approaching God is serious business. That we don't ever just assume that we can stroll into God's presence. No sinner will approach God directly. He will only be approached through a mediator, through a priest. Answer number three to the question, how should people live if God lives with them, is found in chapters 11 through 16. And the answer is, purification is necessary to pursue holiness. Purification is necessary to pursue holiness. And these are the chapters that we find all the, the, the chapters that are uncomfortable for us. And we wonder why we're talking about boils and white hairs and things like that. But the essential idea behind purification, and it's something we don't talk about very much, is that because the faithful are called to be holy as God as, is holy, they are therefore to live a distinctive life, a consecrated life, a set-apart life. The distinctive life is to be a demonstration of God's unrivaled character, his incomparable character. And so when the faithful Israelite became ritually unclean or impure, ritual cleansing or purification had to happen before the pursuit of holiness could happen. Did you catch that? You had to become pure before you could become holy. There was a a two-step process here. And then the fourth answer to the question, how should people live if God lives with them, is found in the final 11 chapters, 17 through 27. And the answer is, holiness unto God is defined by God and God alone. Holiness unto God is defined by God and God alone. Humanity does not get to decide what it means to be holy. And in this covenant made with Israel, God has stipulations which demonstrate holiness. For example, chapter 17, the way sacrifices are made. Chapter 18, sexual conduct. Chapter 19, how to treat fellow citizens. And by the way, chapter 19 has probably the most famous verse in the Old Testament. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Chapters 21 through 25 and chapter 27 examine holiness in the context of life in a theocracy a nation ruled by God in terms of the priests, the offerings, the set-apart days and, and times, the land, everything about a nation's functioning as to what it means to be a nation that's different, that's set apart. And then chapter 26 outlines the blessings and curses depending on covenant loyalty or covenant treachery. Now, all four of those answers to the question, how should people live if God lives with them? These are principles which go beyond one time period. They go beyond one covenant. These answers apply as well to the people of God under the new covenant in Christ. Because the question is, how do we live if God lives with us? Is God living with us? Yes. By virtue of the indwelling Holy Spirit, under the new covenant, God lives in the hearts of every true, regenerate, born-again Christian. So do these principles apply? They do. Answer number one, 
sacrifices necessary to maintain covenant faithfulness. The sacrifice of Christ is what maintains covenant faithfulness, and our rejoicing is the fact that, do you notice there's no blood, there's not a drop of blood up here. And the reason is because, according to Hebrews 9, the sacrifice of Christ was a once-for-all sacrifice, that it's finished. But the warning to the non-Christian is that you cannot, you will not enter into a loving relationship with God without receiving for yourself the sacrifice of Christ, without acknowledging that you're a sinner and in need of payment for your sin. Does answer two apply? Mediation between God and man is necessary for fellowship. Absolutely. Hebrews 9.24 says that Christ now appears in heaven on our behalf. We are not made right with God without Christ. There is no way. Romans 8.34 reminds us that Christ is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Why is it that our salvation is secure? You are not on autopilot spiritually because you're still sinning. If you were on autopilot, you're going down. But you're not. You have a mediator who continues to hold you in his hand. Does answer number three apply? Purification is necessary to pursue holiness. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is confession and purification of the believer in Christ for his continual transgressions, not to regain salvation. Salvation can't be lost, but to maintain a pure relationship. 1 Corinthians 11 warns against attempting to worship God through the Lord's table while still harboring arrogant sin. Jesus commanded us in Matthew chapter 5, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. In other words, purify yourself before coming to worship, before coming to be holy, as it were. How about answer number four? Does it apply? Holiness unto God is defined by God and God alone. In the Old Covenant, for example, part of holiness was dietary law. The New Covenant did away with this. But in the New Covenant, we have definitions of holiness unto God that are equally specific. Hebrews thirteen seventeen: obey your leaders and submit to them. Ephesians 5, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Ephesians 6, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. We have stipulations that tell us what holiness unto God means. And he defines that, not us. So the principles of holiness before God, they haven't changed. Leviticus is just as applicable to us today as it was to Israel 3,500 years ago. It's just that the expression of those principles has changed. That's it. Well, let's do a second question. What are the foundations of Leviticus? I sort of gave you a four-point outline for the whole book there. But now we're going to be more thematic. What are the foundations of Leviticus? Or maybe another, or another way, what do you need to know that helps you understand this book? And I'm just going to give you three. The first foundation is the law has three realms. The law has three realms, three territories in which the law is lived out. The first realm we'll call the heart realm. The law is lived out in the heart realm. The law was never designed to be mindlessly carried out as a numb religious exercise. The internal sin of the worshiper was to be dealt with by God through confession, through humility, and any external conformity to the law was to reflect that internal reality of the heart. 
a heart longing to love and to please and to, to fellowship with God. I, I always weary of the, the misconception that sometimes Christians have that in the Old Testament, the, the faithful were simply mindlessly carrying out these religious exercises with no affection, no love, no emotion. Would you read Psalm 119 sometime and see 176 verses of a worshiper who says, Oh, I love your law because the law represents God. God never asked for mere external conformity. In fact, in fact he hates mere external conformity because it supposes that you can make God happy with fake self-righteousness and you can't. There's a second realm of the law we'll call the heavenly realm. The heavenly realm, the holiness and might of God didn't preclude, didn't prevent the faithful Israelite from pursuing a close and meaningful relationship with God. Don't think that that wasn't possible. As you read through the Psalms again, you you find depth of richness of closeness that frankly we could really, really learn from. Obedience to the law was the means by which this relationship was expressed. It was the means by which you said, I love you. Unto God by demonstrating love with your actions. So there is the heart realm, the heavenly realm. There's a third realm of the law we'll call the humanity realm. The humanity realm, a a true believer in God had a concern for justice, had a concern for right relationships with others as the law demanded. You were God's representative to your fellow citizens and your fellow citizens were God's representatives to you. And so the horizontal relationship, it mattered. It was part of the law. So you, if, if you truly loved the Lord, you pursued treating one another with fairness and grace and equity and humility and love and care. And so functioning in these three realms of the law is what would enable God's chosen nation to live distinctively before all the surrounding nations. And what should be the result of obedience in these three realms of the law? Deuteronomy 26 has a long passage that says, essentially, if you will be careful to do all that I have commanded you in the realms of the heart, in the realms of the heavenlies, in the realms of humanity, he will set you in praise and fame and in honor high above all nations that he has made, and you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God as he promised. The result should be blessing, great blessing, Don't think that it was a burden to live under the law. It was a blessing to live under the law. You weren't saved by the law. You were saved by faith, but it was a blessing to be a part of that system. There's a second foundation you should know in Leviticus, second thing to help you understand the book. God's covenant with Israel answers all major questions. God's covenant with Israel answers all major questions. You cannot properly understand God's relationship with Israel without understanding it is in the context of a covenant, of a contract. God had delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt and given them a new start and a new life, so he made this gracious covenant with them. And this covenant answered all the major questions. I'll just give you a few. And you, if, you, if you read through the covenant, if you read through the Ten Commandments, read through the Book of the Covenant, as we saw in, in Exodus 21 and following, You can answer all these questions. Uh, Questions like, why are we alive and free? Well, the covenant answers that question because Yahweh set his love on us and rescued us from Egypt. How about the question, what will happen if we obey? Great unimaginable blessing and protection and prosperity. What will happen if we disobey? Great unimaginable curses and punishments and disaster. Who's in charge? Yahweh is the king. 
and we are his subjects. What is our purpose? To be a kingdom of priests and to make God big in the world. Every question is answered by the covenant. There's a third foundation of of Leviticus to help you understand the book. And that is the concept of the clean versus the unclean. The clean versus the unclean. And this is where we get into details in Leviticus that if we don't understand that the clean versus the unclean is representing the holiness of God versus the unholiness of man, then we get caught up in those details and wonder why they're there. Another way of saying this is the special versus the ordinary or the sacred versus the profane or common. And Leviticus basically divides all of life into these two categories, literally surrounding them with illustrations of a set-apart, the set-apart nature of God as holy and a tangible uh, demonstration of the set-apart nature of a holy nation. There were pieces of furniture that were holy. There were days that were holy. There were weeks that were holy. There were people and things that were defined as either clean and pure or unclean and impure. And so God then set up certain ritual acts to make a person clean and pure so that he could pursue holiness. To make this distinction, ritual cleansing of a person was not for the forgiveness of sin. It was to be prepared for the forgiveness of sin. Now you say, wait a minute, that sounds weird. The ritual cleansing of a person was not for forgiveness of sin. It was to be prepared for the forgiveness of sin. Jesus made exactly the same distinction. Did you know that? He said in John 3, 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, what is this? Is this a two-step process to salvation? No. It's simply illustrating the concept that purification and cleanness leads you to holiness. All Jesus was doing in John 5, 3, rather, is keying off the concept found in Ezekiel 36 concerning the new covenant that Israel would enjoy someday, that we enjoy today. Here's what Ezekiel 36 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So to save you, God set you apart. That's somewhat analogous to cleansing and renewed you by his spirit. Total forgiveness of sin and the right standing before God. Titus 3.5 tells us that we are saved by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Exactly the same concept. We're, we're being set up in Leviticus through the clean versus the unclean to understand God's process of salvation. Well, here's a third big question in our big overall view. Why is worship so central to holiness before God? Why can't you just be proclaimed as one of God's children and then move on with your life and someday die and go to heaven? And why not play golf every Sunday morning? Why not have a nice time with your life? Why not? Why, why do we gather together? Why are we continually getting together? Why is worship such a vital part of being holy before the Lord? Well, here's a short answer. The short answer is because worship contains all the elements of maintaining a right relationship with God. Worship contains all the elements, all the things you need to maintain the right relationship before God. We, we would never 
say to a little infant, we're so glad you're here with us and we've provided you this room. There's 18 years worth of food and water and things in here and we'll, we'll see you in 18 years. You would never say that. There's a relationship that, that is maintained and for us in relationship to holy God, it is through worship. Let me give you the elements of worship that are emphasized in Leviticus. It's not, it's not comprehensive. This is what Leviticus emphasizes. Leviticus emphasizes voluntary acts of worship. Voluntary acts of worship, such as three different sacrifices, which were voluntary. These were just acts of love and devotion to God. You didn't have to perform these sacrifices, but it was an opportunity for heartfelt affection and thankfulness. There's another element of worship we'll call required atonement for sin. This is different than the voluntary acts of worship. Required atonement for sin speaks of the sin and the guilt offerings that were mandatory. That you could not be in right relationship with God without these atoning sacrifices. Another element of worship we could call consistency of worship. Again, we didn't just go before God one time and call it a day, call it a lifetime. God set up, and he's so brilliant if I can say that about God. He set up a calendar for him. For, for Israel, that there were certain sacrificial and festival days and weeks that you were to keep every year. In other words, if I can put it in really mundane human terms, he's like a husband who makes sure that there are date nights on the calendar with his wife. He makes sure that there are times where they will gather together. And these special days created and formed the sacred rhythm of the faithful Israelites' life. It made all of life revolve around the, your relationship with God. And this included everything from Sabbath to Passover to other feast days or weeks outlined in Leviticus. So you had voluntary acts of worship, required atonement for sin, consistency of worship. One more element that's emphasized in Leviticus, tithes and offerings. Tithes and offerings. The, the tithe was commanded to create dependence on God rather than dependence on self and hoarding your material possessions. But they were also for the purpose of running the theocratic government, supporting the Levites who did so. We would, we would really call it more of a tax. The offerings, on the other hand, they were other opportunities to give generously on other occasions above and beyond what was required of the tithe. We are not under the Old Testament system, but I grew up in the church where they said, would the men come forward to receive our what? Tithes and offerings, right? We still say it by accident because it's so ingrained in who we are. But you, if you ask the question, well, what does that have to do with us today? These same elements of worship are central to holiness before God for us as well as partakers in the new covenant. Voluntary acts of worship. Paul commended the Thessalonians for their over and above love for one another. He told them in 1 Thessalonians 4, Concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. But he goes on to say, do more. Do more. Do voluntary acts of worship through love more. We do so many, many ministries at Grace Bible Church, and you are so vitally involved. Honestly, if we were to strip it down to only what the Bible actually commands us to do, we'd probably all have a lot more time on our hands. But we do extra. We do more. We don't have to do a steadfast conference. We don't have to have a women's ministry. We don't have to have a men's ministry. But we do more. We're volunteering, volunteering our worship. How about require the atonement for sin? 
we are compelled to remember the atonement for sin given by the death of Christ. In fact, in one of the very few commands that the Lord Jesus left behind for the gathering of the church, we're commanded to remind ourselves regularly of that atonement. How? Through the Lord's table. That we must always remember the Lord through the Lord's table, that sin has a penalty and Christ paid it. How about consistency of worship? Why do we gather on the Lord's day? We gather on the Lord's day because that was what the New Testament church was, was doing immediately to commemorate the, the resurrection of Christ. But we're reminded in the classic Hebrews 10 passage, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And our consistency of worship happens in our lived out worship filled lives. The classic verse in Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living what? Sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. There is to be consistency. We have a consistency of worship by obeying the Lord's commands in all areas of life. And that's how we maintain proper covenant relationship. Is there an example of this in the Bible? How about when Peter tells husbands in 1 Peter 3, if you're a jerk to your wife, I won't hear your prayers. You maintain the horizontal so that the vertical maintains as well. How about tithes and offerings? We don't technically tithe. That was a payment to run a theocracy, which we don't have. But there is a principle involved in that the sharing of financial resources for the ministry of the church and particularly to fund the preaching of God's word. This isn't optional. This isn't something that only mature Christians do. This is mandatory. It's prescribed in 2 Corinthians 9. It's prescribed in very strong terms in 1 Timothy 5. And of course, offerings speak to the various opportunities we have to go above and beyond our normal giving. You know, we start, when we started our Joyful Generosity campaign uh, kind of last fall and especially this spring in earnest, um, <clears throat> we took a lot of time to build a theology of giving. I didn't really have to take all that time. There's the money you're forced to give by God, and there's the money that you hope to give by God. That's it. Tithes and offerings, same sort of concept. But all of these elements of worship demonstrate our desire to live distinctly, to live holy before God in Christ. And if put it this way, all four of those elements of worship that I just listed, with your unsaved neighbor, your unsaved friends, if you start telling them that those are the things you do, they kind of look at you like you're different. And if they say you're different, oh, you know what God calls that? That's called holy. You're set apart. Here's a fourth question, and now we're going to move beyond Leviticus. What is God's plan for holiness on the earth? Why is Leviticus so incredibly exciting to us because it looks forward to something else? What's God's plan for holiness on the earth? Well, at this time, in the time of Leviticus, and to a certain extent in our time as well, the holy and the profane, the clean and the unclean are separated. And in fact, the profane and the unclean help us understand the concept of holy and clean by way of comparison. How, how do we understand that praises in song are holy and clean? Because we also see that profanity and coarse talk is profane and unclean. So we have a basis of comparison. How do we understand that marital intimacy between a man and a woman is holy and clean? Because we see that 
from Scripture and from experience that other forms of sexual expression are profane and unclean. How do we understand that children obeying parents is holy and clean? Well, because we see that rebellious, spoiled, entitled children are profane and unclean. This is instinctive for us. We have the holy and the unholy. I would characterize our world as primarily profane, wouldn't you? Primarily unclean. Very little in our world is holy. Very little in our world is clean. But there will be a day when much more is holy and clean than is profane and unclean. That first step, the day often called the millennial kingdom, the reign of Christ on earth, more is holy. There's an interesting little footnote in Zechariah 14 about what will be happening in that time. God will reinstitute the Feast of Booths and it will literally render everything around it holy. Here's this little footnote in Zechariah 14, 20 and 21. On that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. In other words, if you live in Jerusalem, if you live in that whole surrounding area, you open your kitchen cupboard and you look on the back and your, your pan doesn't say uh, whatever your brand is. It says, holy to the Lord. Everything set apart, everything clean. This makes sense to us. That when Christ is physically present, everything around him gets holy. Now, the joke is often made that Jesus ruined a lot of funerals because every time he came, the, the dead person came to life. When Jesus touched something unclean, he didn't become unclean. That unclean thing became clean. And so this makes sense. But it gets even better. In the final kingdom, there will exist a day when, if I could use a double negative, there is nothing that is not holy. There's nothing that's not holy. Revelation 22.19 describes New Jerusalem and calls it the holy city. It doesn't just mean that it's God's chosen city. It means everything having to do with it is holy. In fact, the previous chapter in Revelation 21 says that New Jerusalem has been, quote, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What is the goal of every bride on her wedding day when, it, when she's looking in the mirror? It is literally to look perfect, right? I don't do this anymore, but I used to tell, bride, t- tell grooms, take a good look. This is as good as she'll ever be. We won't do that now, but that is the whole purpose, right? I want to be clean. I want to be perfect for the bridegroom and this is what new jerusalem is and as you read the description of new earth and new heaven and new jerusalem it becomes extremely apparent abundantly clear that everything in all creation has been made holy everything we can't even fathom that because everything around us is dirty and filthy and profane and unclean in fact this is confirmed in revelation 22 3 which says that in this time, no longer will there be anything accursed, meaning everything is holy. Nothing profane or unclean is there. But we should be reminded of the intensity of God's holiness, just how clean and pure he is. So I want to cap off our time tonight by thinking about one final question. How intense is God's holiness? How intense is his holiness? I just want to give you an illustration to help us understand this. 
Remember when the Ark of the Covenant fell into the hands of the Philistines? But through David, Israel was going to get it back. Do you recall what happened the day they got the ark back? It's it's a disturbing passage to us. It makes us question God if we're not careful. Here's what happened. Let me just read to you from 2 Samuel 6. You don't have to turn there. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to come up, bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And you say, isn't that nice? He wanted to keep the ark from falling. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. That's hard for us to grasp, because there seemed to be no ill intent there. It's hard to read that and wonder why God would strike Uzzah, who was simply trying to keep the Ark of the Covenant from falling into the dirt. That's all he was trying to do. But let's look at the facts. And let's be reminded of how white hot the holiness of God is. Let me give you four facts. First one, God prohibited touching the holy things of the tabernacle. He prohibited it. It was against the law. The Ark was constructed with rings so that it could be carried by poles and not touched by sinful men. Exodus 25, number 7, verse 9, even tells us that a specific family, the sons of Kohath, were given the task of carrying the holy things with the poles on the shoulder, never touching the holy things. Numbers 4, verse 15, gives a warning. And when Aaron and his sons had finished covering the the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out after that, The sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. So God prohibited the touching of the holy things. It was against the law. Second fact, Uzzah did not die on a technicality. He didn't die on a technicality. This is not characterized in Scripture as an innocent mistake. Verse 7 of that chapter says that God, quote, struck him because of his error. It's a word which means his pride, his impudence, his hastiness. It can even mean his blasphemy. If God is always just, and God is always just, and if Uzzah died at the hand of God, then Uzzah deserved to die. Here's a third fact, which you've already picked up on. The ark was not being carried according to the law. The ark was not being carried according to the law. You remember, we studied this in Exodus. The ark of the covenant is the very throne of God on earth. And they put it on a cart driven by cows. They denigrated the ark rather than being carried by poles on the shoulders of men who have been consecrated, who have been made clean, who have been set apart for the task. There's one more fact Uzzah had pride in his heart concerning himself. Uzzah had pride in his heart concerning himself. And you might say, where do you see that? 
Well, we see it in his actions because Uzzah instinctively believed something and thus acted in haste based on what he believed in his heart. What did he believe in his heart? Uzzah believed that he was cleaner before God than the ground to which the ark would have fallen was. He believed he was cleaner than the dirt, that it was better for the ark to touch his hand than it was for it to touch the dirt. But here's the spiritual reality of the creation. The dirt is the victim of the sin of mankind. The dirt is the victim. Mankind is the perpetrator. Romans 8.20 says that the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. And it was because of the sin of man. And so in reality, Uzzah said to himself, I am cleaner than the earth. He had pride in his heart. But spiritually speaking, in many ways, dirt is spiritually cleaner than humanity. Because Romans 8 presents the creation as the victim of our sin. It would have been better. And you ask the question, what should Ezra have done? He should have let it fall. He should have let it fall. Now, maybe God strikes him dead for not having it uh, bound properly to the cart. But better that than to presume that I am the cleanest thing around here. The lesson for us is to not underestimate the intensity of God's holiness, nor to underestimate the importance of be holy for I am holy. And so our journey through Leviticus over the next 10 messages is centered on the theme of holiness. We'll look at holiness and sacrifice, holiness and mediation, holiness and purity, holiness and blood atonement, holiness and sexual conduct, holiness and love, Holiness and new covenant people. I'm going to give you an example of using the law in order to principalize for us in the new co- under the new covenant. Holiness and a worshipful life. Holiness and resting in God. And holiness and covenant faithfulness. And I believe you will find that it applies directly to your Monday through Saturday every single time. Listen, no Israelite ever kept the law of Moses perfectly. No Israelite ever managed true holiness And the law, therefore, points us to our need for a solution, doesn't it? It points us to our need that we need a stand-in. We need a substitute who is, in fact, holy, who has, in fact, been perfectly pure, who has, in fact, kept the law perfectly. And, of course, that substitute is Christ, who is holy as a substitute for us who are unholy. And because of Christ... What does the New Testament call you 61 times? New Testament calls you saints. It's the same root Greek word translated holy, the set-apartness of God. You are made holy because of Christ. You are those who have been made positionally holy, set apart through the Lord Jesus Christ, and now we're called to reflect that holiness in your loving obedience to the one who made you holy before him. Doesn't that make sense? that if he made you holy, we are called to be holy. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for, and we're excited about our beginning journey here through Leviticus. And I'm excited because it's a little shorter than some of the other books we've done so far. And so we will be able to take a little bit more time. Lord, it is a reminder to all of us that grace does not mean act however you want. That in fact, just the opposite, because we have been given the imputed righteousness of Christ because we have been set apart to be the saints of God through Christ. How much greater is our motivation to 
act in a way that is pleasing to you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, to be Christ-like in our deeds, in our words, in our very thoughts. And so, Lord, rather than seeing Leviticus as as many have joked, as dry and dusty, it is as relevant as my next opportunity to sin. It is as relevant as the, the thought which would bring me into impurity before you. It is as relevant as the deed to which I am tempted. It is as relevant as the word which I speak, which is hurtful and sinful. And so, Lord, I pray that you would inspire us, that you would encourage us toward holiness so that our relationship with you might be righteous and, imp- and pure and, and completely uh, without any besetting sin. And, and I know that that is a, a lifetime process and we won't fully achieve it in this life. But Lord, it is my prayer that the message of Leviticus, be holy for I am holy, would invade our hearts such that we would never forget it and we would act accordingly. And it is for Christ's sake and his glory we pray. Amen.